As I usually exhort, uh, please, by all means, keep your Bibles open. Let's uh, be people of the book. Of course, testing everything I say against the word. But before we jump into it, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer once again, and we'll jump into it. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we thank you once again that we can come to you, that we can lift up our petitions, our supplications to a God who hears and listens to his children. Father, as we jump into your word, and Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for the words of eternal life in which we can know Christ. Help us this morning to just be able to go through your word, to be able to have ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that are open for the prompting of the Spirit. So, Father, may we be people who are open uh, to uh, keeping in step with the Spirit, May we be people who love your word, and Father, we just pray for distractions and tiredness to be kept at bay. Father, help me to be clear, and Father, may we indeed be able to relish your word and mine it for the gold that it contains. In your son's most blessed name, amen. Born into a non-Christian family in North Africa in the third century, Lactantius was a well-known professor in rhetoric. He was held in high esteem within society, and in fact, he even gained favor with the Roman emperor Diocletian. His star was on the rise. At the age of 50, he had positions and power and influence, so much so he had the patronage of the Roman emperor. He had become intimate friends with so many of influence and his position seemed secure until, that is, he encountered Christ. Having wrestled with Christianity, he came to embrace Christ at the age of 52 and consequently becoming a Christian in a very anti-Christian age He resigned or was forced to resign his professorship. And this happened right before one of the worst persecutions of the early church occurred, which was the the persecution under the Roman emperor Diocletian, once his patron. And before, so he resigned right before then, and between that persecution, between 3,000 to 3,500 Christians paid with their lives and were martyred by this emperor. And Lactantius was not immune to this. Whilst once upon a time he was a man of great influence, a man of great report, he was not immune and he was driven from, at the age of 52, 53, he was driven from place to place and often lived in immense poverty. A far cry from the wealth and fame he once had. However, he was willing to count the cost. Why? Because he believed in Christ. He who, who, Lactantius added, Jesus Christ who was the deliverer, the judge, the king and God. And while Lactantius himself was to survive the persecution which was to claim so many others and eventually come under the patronage of the Roman emperor Constantine who you probably are more familiar with until his own death in 325 AD. 
He was he died knowing and seeing that freedom and promotion of Christian or Christianity by that very same emperor. Lactantius, though, he knew what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ and to count the cost of what that meant in his older age. And he's not alone. Prior to Lactantius and certainly after, the pages of history testify to many brothers and sisters who counted that very same cost of what it meant to believe in Jesus Not because it's convenient, not because it's comfortable, but because it's true. Christ is the Messiah. Christ is, as Lactantius said, deliverer, judge, king, and God. Even through some paid the cost of death. Because they knew who Christ was, they knew what it meant, and they trusted in him. But let us, before we get up to Lactantius in the 4th century the 3rd and 4th century, let us hit the rewind button all the way back earlier to Lextantius, all the way to before even the coming of Jesus Christ. Back to Judaism at the time. Whilst many Jews, of course, uh, right in the time period right before Christ was born, many Jews had returned from the Babylonian exile for, and they had been back in the land after for several hundred years. But Israel, despite the rebuilding of the temple, Israel was still not much better off. They had been under Persian rule, and then after the Persians, they were conquered by the Greeks. They fought for independence and overthrew the Greeks, and for a hundred years were independent of any foreign nation, until, that is, the Romans came. And once again, the Jews were under the control of a foreign power. Many Jews were eager at this time, as Jesus was born into, many Jews at this time were eager for the shackles of Rome to be thrown off and for the long prophesied descendant of David, the Savior, to come and rescue them, to make Israel the beacon of the known world. To bring the nation back to the glory that he had known under Kings David and King Solomon. A military and political leader that would lead them to such glory. And this is what so many of them looked forward to. That this is what they thought that the Messiah, the longed for Christ, the promised in scripture what he would do. And this itself sets the greater passage the greater context of this passage for this morning, as we find ourselves once again in Matthew chapter 9, looking at exactly what Jesus is doing here in these verses before us. Now, for those here this morning who are wanting to know what the sermon outline is, I have three points. The first is the Messiah has come. The second is the responses by many. And the last point is the response by some. So that's the Messiah has come, the responses by many, the response by some. Now, as we look at verses 27 to 34, we would do well to remember what everything which has occurred up until this point. Namely, if we go back to Matthew 8, that Jesus healed a paralytic. He's called Matthew as well. 
uh, a disreputable sinner and spent time with sinners, so much so that the Pharisees were going, well, why is your teacher spending time with sinners, which, with such men of disrepute? And he also explains to John's disciples that he himself, Jesus, has come to do something new. He's not simply there to reinvigorize an existing system, but rather Jesus has come to usher in a new reality, his kingdom. And this is why he goes to the disciples of John. This is why my disciples do not fast. Christ then proceeds to raise Jairus' daughter from the death, uh, from, uh, from de- uh, death, and he also goes to heal a woman from unceasing bleeding. And now we continue from verse 27. Now, as I mentioned before, please do keep your Bibles open. But as Jesus, in verse 27, we read, as Jesus went on from there, we see that two blind men, two blind men, they followed him and they called out, have mercy on us, have pity on us, son of David. Now, this title, son of David, was a messianic title. It was one that the blind men were saying that they, that, that they recognized who Jesus was, or at least they were inferring they knew who Jesus was, that Jesus was that very same Messiah that so many of them were looking forward to. The long prophesied one in scripture had come. And this title, Son of David, this is the first time we actually see this, being, Jesus being referred to as the Son of David by anyone in the Gospel of Matthew, outside of Matthew 1.1. If you want to turn there, Matthew actually talks about Jesus being the Son of David. Again, it's important. But these blind men, these blind men, possibly they're hearing of Jesus' actions or possibly they've been following Jesus long enough that they actually have heard what he's been doing firsthand, depending on how long they've been following him. They resolved at this point to throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ. And so they acknowledge him as the son of David. They call upon him as the promised Messiah. And curiously, our Lord does not respond to them immediately. We see in verse 28 that it is only when Jesus enters the house, that only when Jesus enters the house and then the blind men follow him, that Jesus actually interacts with them. Now, we don't know whose house this is, but as they enter and they approach Christ, Jesus says to them, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can do this? Now, they don't tell tell Christ what they want for help or mercy. It's self-evident and they're blind. But Jesus asks them, for their faith. They had it after all. They followed him. They've called out to him. They, they've made physical or outward expressions of faith. Saying son of David and following him to this far and crying out to him. But here their faith is vocalized. It is openly professed when they respond Yes, Lord. And so in response, what does Jesus do? 
Jesus reaches out to them and touches their eyes. Let it be done for you according to your faith. Or to put it differently, as you have believed, so let it be. Now, similarly to what Jesus had said to the centurion much earlier, in a, a, a few chapters back in chapter 8, or the woman earlier in this chapter, Jesus responds to their faith. But we need to be careful here. It's not in accordance to the degree of faith, as in, for, for some reason, a more perfect faith would merit some, a more perfect miracle. But that it, it's where the presence of faith was rightly placed, and that is in Christ. Instead, it's demonstrated in these passages in front of us this morning that it is only right, it is only proper for Jesus to be the object of our faith. You'll notice he does not go, do you believe that God the Father can do this? But rather, that I can do this. And their placing of faith in Christ, as we see in this text, is well rewarded. As their eyes are opened after he touches them. And then after after being sternly warned, they leave. And then what happens? A demon-possessed man, incapable of speech, was brought to him. Now, it's it's clear from this text that this man's demon possession had left him and rendered him mute. That's what the cause of him not being able to speak was, because he was possessed. As John Chrysostom, the church father, once put it, the affliction that this man suffered from was not natural, but the device of the evil spirit. Wherefore, also he needs others to bring him. For this cause neither does... He, that's Jesus, require faith of him, but straight away heals the disease. Indeed, just like the paralytic, we don't know this man's disposition towards Christ. He was possessed by a demon who was brought in front of Jesus. We don't know if he himself was positively inclined to Christ. I would gather that probably not. But we don't know. We don't know this man's disposition, just like the paralytic who was brought by his friends in front of Christ. But it is clear in this text in front of us that Jesus heals him. A different type of healing, yes, uh, as opposed to physically healing. He does spiritual healing here. By casting out the cause, that is the demon, the man was able to, what, speak once again. And it's it's clear in Scripture up until this point that while many of these miracles were invoked through faith, This was not always exclusively so. This was not exclusively always the case. Some of the healings, some of the exorcisms, the raising of the dead were done involuntarily done on on the part of those who were the recipients of the miracles of Jesus. This is why we can't just simply go, it's based on the person themselves who are the recipients. No, ultimately, it's based on what Christ is doing here. This is why we must pause and ask ourselves, what is actually happening in this text before us this morning? With all these miracles that we've seen in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, what is going on? 
Jesus calmed the storms. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's He's raised one from the dead. What is going on? Is Jesus now giving an understanding of the normative state for Christians today, that through Christ we can expect all these miracles to continue happening today? I'm sure in some circles they would say yes. But I would argue that they don't understand Scripture on this point. The answer, of course, is no. But rather, what is happening through these chapters? Well, it's this, and this is what Matthew's trying to get at through talking about these miracles that Jesus is doing from Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. That Jesus Christ himself is undoubtedly Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. He is the one who's been long prophesied, the one who Moses and the prophets testified about. And in all of these verses, including what we've just read this morning, it testifies to who Christ is. Is It testifies that the long-sought Messiah, the longed-for Messiah, had actually come. And that he had what? He had authority over the supernatural. He had authority over all natural affairs. He could calm storms, raise the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick and the blind. And in fact, blindness is a particularly special disease here. Because outside of being one of the most prolific diseases of antiquity, and it was seen by many as being just a little bit better than being dead, just to put emphasis on that, being blind was seen as a little better than being dead by many. Out of all the miracles that Jesus does, he healed more cases of blindness than any other miracle. And why is that? It's because blindness was a spiritual metaphor to people's spiritual state. Blindness itself had messianic and scriptural overturns. Psalm 146 verse 8 puts it that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. But it's particularly the prophet Isaiah who points out the spiritual or the oppression of spiritual blindness. When he talks about, and again, Isaiah, like Jeremiah, their they're prophet, they're prophetic uh, books and you know, the prophets themselves are testifying about the Messiah in many places. But Isaiah particularly states that when the promised one comes, he would, on that day that he appears, the death will hear the words of a document, and out of a deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Later, in Isaiah 35, verse 5, he goes, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus would come, Isaiah states, in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those sitting in the darkness from their prison house. The healing of the blind man here in Matthew 9 and the many other occasions in which it happens is pointing not only to the the fact that sin exists and we see the outworking of sin in human nature because of diseases and so forth, but is pointing to the spiritual blindness that Jesus, being the Christ, had actually come to overthrow. 
the bondage that he had come first and foremost to unshackle. Jesus had not come just to heal the the physically blind, but primarily had come to heal those who were spiritually blind. And this is what is happening throughout these chapters we have covered so far. These chapters here, Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, this is an establishment of Jesus' own ministry. That he is the one who was prophesied about by Isaiah and others. That he is, as the blind men rightly call out, the son of David. All of these acts, all of these miracles were to demonstrate and to verify who Jesus was. If people had ears to hear and the eyes to see, that the Messiah had indeed come. This is why later on in Matthew 11, the disciples of John, they come up to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, for those of us who were here this morning and we remember Jesus' answer, it's to the point. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy, they're cleansed. The deaf, they hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And as he does all these miracles, what happens? Well, knowledge of Jesus increases, doesn't it? His fame across the land increases. Knowledge of him grows. We see this in Matthew 9, verse 26, and also verse 33, that more and more people come to an understanding, or at least a hearing, about who this Jesus is. That doesn't necessarily mean they'll have the right understanding of who he is, but they're hearing this name, Jesus of Nazareth. Yet living in such a time, ministering at such a period... This also brought problems. Because rather than see who Jesus is based on his own words, many instead again looked for the Messiah to be in the form of what they wanted. They didn't like this Jesus who was claiming to be the Messiah based on what he was doing. They wanted something else, something they wanted. Remember, many of them wanted a Messiah who would come in and bring them military victory. Many wanted a regal king who would sit upon the throne of David and would rule Israel and lead it to that greatness again. They wanted to make Israel great again. Yaga, and it certainly doesn't run off the tongue, uh, tongue like Maga, but anyway, the, um, but instead of, reign, uh, of a reigning king born in a palace, they received what? A cosmic king born in a manger. And even here with this title, Son of David, it's possible, it's even probable that the reason why he didn't deal with these blind men straight away in public and let them come into the house with him after was he wanted to avoid people confusing what he was actually doing with what they wanted him to do. For his true ministry, what he'd actually come here on earth to do, to be overshadowed 
by their own misconceptions. It's also likely that that the reason why Jesus sternly warns the blind men was to avoid people clamoring upon him to see sign after sign, miracle after miracle. Because as one commentator rightly puts it, the greatest miracle is often the one least noticed. And it's what? The miracle of forgiveness. That Jesus had come as Christ to bring about. It was a miracle of reconciliation between man and God. That man through faith in him could be made right with God. These temporal miracles which Jesus was doing by healing, bringing people sight from their blindness, by by healing this woman who was incessantly bleeding for such a period of time, these temporal miracles were small and minute in comparison to what Jesus had actually come into this world to do. These miracles, they were just meant to authenticate who Jesus was was and point to what he had come to really do. Indeed, again, Jesus is the longed-for Messiah. He was also the Saviour who was prophesied. He was the Redeemer that many attested would come. And he didn't come to save people from their temporal problems that they encountered here. No, they, he came to solve the greatest problem they had. And as Jesus came and did these things in these passages, particularly in these verses we read today, we see several responses to his ministry, don't we? There's at least three groups that I want to focus on this morning. The blind men, the crowd, and also the Pharisees. But let's look at the first two, uh, the last two first, the crowd and the Pharisees. Now we see the crowd having seen this man who was demon-possessed and mute, suddenly being able to speak after that demon was cast out. How did they respond? They were amazed. We read in verse 33 that they exclaim, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now, This is likely hyperbole. After all, Jesus had already raised someone from the dead, death. I don't know about you. I'd probably say raise someone from death, you know, casting out a demon. I'd probably still say death uh, is probably a bit higher. And he's also shown his control over the elements. But to this crowd, they were amazed at what he was doing. They were amazed at Jesus. That's all we hear about this crowd. They were amazed. But they do not, as we can see here, they do not, as far as we know, turn to Jesus in faith. As a response, they simply marvel at what took place. As Charles Spurgeon once put it, it is a small thing to marvel, but a great thing to believe. Now, it's impossible that they saw what had transpired as nothing more as a simple form of entertainment for them. I don't know what passed as entertainment necessarily, and 
first century Judaism, but maybe they went, hey, this is different, this is exciting, this is, we don't see this every day. But for some, they may have been truly amazed at what took place and fought long and hard on it. But it had not changed their hearts. It did not change their disposition to Christ. Many could have been following Jesus for a while. After all, we know crowds were following him. Many had been, uh, could have been following Jesus for a while simply to see this. But it had no lasting impact on their spiritual state. And sadly, this is so true of so many Christians today. They come to observe, they come to marvel at Christ and they're amazed at what he has done. But they don't actually place their faith in him. They keep on living the way they do, did prior to Christ entering their life. They know of him, but they don't truly know him. And consequently, Jesus means very little to them. Perhaps a little bit of lip service. Yes, I follow Christ. Well, enough to go to church. But I do not truly follow him and confess him and trust in him. They become nothing more than the supposed lukewarm Christians that Jesus rebukes in Revelation. That That Jesus would spit from his mouth. And why does this happen? Brothers and sisters, why does this happen? Because of the state of their hearts, right? They did not truly want want to follow Jesus. Not like the, the blind men who went in need. They went in dependency. And so while paying lip service, they never truly went to Christ in faith. They knew that Christ had come. They know what he's done. But it's done very little in their hearts. Friends, may we never be those who simply just marvel and stand amazed at Christ as if he was nothing more than a good teacher without also trusting in him as our saviour. So often people can go, oh, Jesus is such a wonderful person, but... They've never once put their or exercised faith in him. Let us not be like that. If we know who Jesus is, let us not only repent of everything we've done, but place our full confidence and faith and trust. Yet as pervasive as this is in modern day Christianity, how much more common is the other response? One which seeks to avoid who Christ is. I'm... Uh, who attempts to misattribute who he is by denying or simply ignoring him. And of course, I'm talking about the Pharisees. Because we know the Pharisees, they did not want Jesus. Jesus wasn't part of their equation. He wasn't part of what they wanted. They did not want a Messiah, not one like Christ, who would upend their system, who would challenge the status quo, who would challenge their comfortability. And while it's interesting, in this point, when the Pharisees respond, you know, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. They're actually saying, well, he is miraculous. He is doing things. He's just not from God. They acknowledge his miraculous power, but what do they do? They misattribute it. And not for the last time either. 
as in being league in league with Satan. But Jesus, we read, um, was cast out. Yeah, Jesus, we read, was casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, of course, many of us would go, "Well, we don't do that." But the form of response of what underlies this, which undergirds this, is so common. Because it's pretending Christ is anything other than who he truly is. And this takes so many different forms. It could be the denial of the historicity of Jesus. I've come across many who have said, oh, Jesus never really existed. Or if he did exist, they'll claim, well, nothing more than a good teacher or a lunatic, madman. Because see, to simply avoid the questions that are raised by the fact of Jesus' existence and his claims as Savior and God himself, well, that's more preferable. Because if Jesus is true, if Jesus is real, well, that's going to lead to very uncomfortable conversations about who they are, who they've been trusting in, and what they've been doing. And like the Pharisees, there are so many who respond in a way that they don't want that challenge. They don't want to wrestle with the reality of Jesus because they know that if it's true, then they have to take who Jesus is and the claims that he makes seriously. That their lives cannot continue in the same way it was before Jesus entered the picture. But how man loves their sin. How man would do anything to avoid God, to suppress the truth, suppress Christ. And yet at the same time as they suppress Christ, they suppress the truth. When they die, they expect to be given a first class ticket to heaven. But that's the way this world works. How true it is, of course it's a verse, of course it's true, but wide is the gate. And broad is a road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. And these responses to Christ, well, these ensure that they do not enter the small gate by the narrow road that leads to eternal life. They would rather, these type of people would rather keep on their own path leading to death and destruction than forsake their own sin. To forsake their soul called autonomy to forsake their so-called independence which is really dependence upon sin and enslavement to sin ignorance is bliss until it isn't you know I, I've seen as I've been when I when I drive I've seen a number of times when emergency vehicles ambulances police, uh, not too often uh, the, fire, uh, the fireies, but I've seen them drive behind a passenger car. Someone just driving normally. And then that person driving isn't even aware that there's an emergency vehicle behind them. You know, the sirens are flashing, the, the, the making sounds, the paramedics are honking on the horn trying to get this person's attention. And what's happened? They've got earpods in. Not checking their rear view, they're just cruising on. All the whilst everybody else is noticing their behaviour, or all, everybody else is certainly noticing what's happening. But this is how so many people respond to Christ, by pretending he's not there. He's there, but they, and God's there, but they want to suppress the truth. They ignore him, like he's not actually there. 
They think that as long as they make excuses, as long as they pretend that they're a good person, it will be enough. But it won't. We can never be good enough. Scripture's clear. Each and every person will be called to give an account before God. And ignorance, suppression of truth, will not suffice. Yet while many live in such ways, the response by some, by the blind men, was what? One of faith. Now they likely, at this point in time, they did not know the full extent of who Jesus was or what he was doing. But they knew enough to believe that he was a longed, promised son of David. The fruition of Genesis 3.15, he was the serpent crusher, the one who had power, the one from God, prophesied by Moses and the prophets. Now, it's likely they do not know from themselves but that who Jesus was. It's likely they probably knew because God had granted him that knowledge. Just as when Peter later confesses that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 16. And because Jesus responds to Peter going, that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's possible that God was working to blind men to make them see who Jesus was. And being that these blind men believed, they followed Christ. They confessed Christ. They trusted Christ was able. And he was the object of their faith as seen through their words and their actions. They knew that Jesus was merciful. They knew that Jesus was compassionate. They knew that if only they approached him, if only they could speak to him, They knew he was willing to save them and that he had the power to do so. They believed he was indeed the son of David, the Lord. And this is the very same Messiah, the very same Savior, the very same Redeemer that we too accord the place faith in. And we ought to know, brothers and sisters, we ought to know the very same as them, that Jesus is merciful, that Jesus is compassionate, that he is he who we can always go to, that he is always willing to save those who come to him and has done so for all who turn to him in belief. This is what Christians over the last 2,000 years have found out. That he will not turn away a single person who comes eagerly to him in faith. This is what Lactantius at the beginning, like many before him and so many after him, was to find out. That Jesus had come to conquer sin, to conquer death, to bring life to those who came to him in dependency and trust, that the Messiah had indeed come. He had established his ministry, his kingdom, and now he beckons all to come to him in need.
Wherever, whoever goes to him will never go hungry. Whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. The Messiah had indeed come to effect the greatest miracle and to meet our deepest need. Reunion with the, with the Father, reconciliation with God. But this is only for those like the blind men, like those who are sick, who realize they are in great need, who recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And that Christ is, as Lactantius stated, deliverer, judge, king, and God. Now, this does not mean that our faith and our obedience needs to be perfect. Because only Christ is perfect, and only his obedience was perfect, in which we trust. But but Christians can be like the blind men here. Because as we read, before they leave, we see in verse 30, Jesus warns them not to tell people about what just occurred. Now, again, Jesus perhaps told them in order for his ministry not to be overwhelmed by those wanting nothing but to see signs or those who wanted, again, a political military leader, Messiah. But we see that the blind men, despite being told not to go and talk about what had occurred, perhaps in their seal they go out and they disobey Christ. Whilst their faith was exercised initially, we can see that they were not obedient here. Now again, praise God that we are saved by faith and not obedience. How we would fail if the opposite was true. But we need to know that, like many of us, they only began to spiritually see who Jesus was. And undoubtedly, like many of us, they matured gradually. Just like Peter who goes from confessing, again, confessing Jesus is the Messiah in, in Matthew 16, only then after to rebuke Jesus for talk, when Jesus talks about his impending death. We often a slow bunch. I don't know about you, but I'm quite thick. I need to learn the same lesson time and time again. I mean, they call Jesus Lord and immediately disregard what he says. How thick are they? But I know I'm not, I'm not any better. How true it is that we are so alike them. We ask the same questions again and again. We fail and fail time after time. But this is why salvation is all of grace and not of works. That it is of mercy and not merit. Thankfully, Jesus accepts us not because of our performance, but because of his performance. But friends, we must be like those who recognize that Jesus is merciful. He is powerful. He is Lord. We need to repent of our follies. We need to repent of the time when we go against him and the the love that we have for this world. And we need to trust him. We need to be those who go to Christ in need. 
willingly pleading like these blind men, have mercy on me. Brothers and sisters, the Messiah has come. And he has come and he beckons all people everywhere to come to him. But how will you respond? Like the blind men in dependency, need and trust? Or like the crowd simply sitting there believing Christ is amazing but leaving it there? Or will you continue to ignore him, not wishing to change your cushy life? You know, the question of this sermon, and if had you had the bulletin, you would see it in your bulletins, is do you believe? Do you believe? And my hope is that so many of us will be able to answer back, yes, Lord. That we can turn to him in repentance and faith, knowing that he is the Messiah. He is who he is. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death and beckons all of us to trust in him. May we do so. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we again thank you so much for the fact that we can come before your throne of grace, recipients of your mercy, recipients of your grace, recognizing that we have no merit in of ourselves. But Father, we rejoice in Christ because we recognize what he has done and the cost that he paid upon the cross for all of those who believe in him, all of those who are born again, all of those who are redeemed. Father, may we be those who turn to Christ and go, yes, Lord. May we be those who go to Christ and go, have mercy on us. Because we know that we are a desperate people. We are a needy people but we also know that our deepest need is met in Christ. That nothing in this world can satisfy but Christ. The Messiah has come. And he is our Redeemer. He is the Judge. He is the King. And he is God. Let that be the profession of our own mouths. That Christ is mine and I am his. In your son's most blessed name. Amen.